Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Big Sister Hotline is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I pay my respects to Elders past and present. The Hotline is proud to be an ongoing supporter of JIRA, a community-controlled Aboriginal-led organisation. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal, and Black Lives Matter. Big Sister Hotline, how can we help? Sister Hotline with me, your host, Clementine Ford. And you might notice that the hotline is a little bit different this week. I've been experimenting with a new format and I enjoy it my, for myself, but I would love to know what you listeners think. So please feel free to email me on bigsisterhotline at gmail.com and let me know whether or not you like this new format or you'd like to go back to the old one. Um, I'd love to have your feedback and just let me know what you think of the podcast in general. I also wanted to take this opportunity just to remind people that my third book is coming out next week. It's being published on the 2nd of November. It's called How We Love. It's a collection of personal essays about love and the myriad ways it impacts our life. I loved writing it and I hope that you love reading it. So please check it out. It will be available in all good bookstores. I'd love for you to shop independent and it's the most personal thing I've ever written. So enjoy. My guest this week is a longtime friend of the podcast and also of myself. She's one of my best friends. She's a feminist, a community organizer, and is currently writing her third book, The Mother Shock, which is about basically the industry around motherhood and how none of us are adequately prepared for it. She is Karen Pickering. Your abode. Isn't it exciting? <laughs> I haven't had anyone record this podcast with me face to face for months. Oh, I feel honoured. You know, there's just something about sitting in a room with someone where you can, like you can pick up on all those little nonverbal cues and be a little bit more intuitive about discussions. I'm very pleased to have you here. Thank you. Now, before we get into the topics of today, you have a new podcast out. Let's just talk about that. I do. Shashala uh, Femme is the name of the podcast and people who live in Melbourne of a certain age might remember I used to have a show called Shoshala Femme, a live show that bounced around pubs and Spiegel tents and whatnot. Um, but it's coming back as a podcast and it's going to be slightly different in that instead of wrangling a panel every month, I will just be like you having a one-on-one -on -one chat with a guest who uh, I just love talking about pop culture with. So, uh, the idea is that we want to celebrate fandom of women and girls 
I started thinking of this phrase, fandom with abandon, mm-hmm, and how girls and women are really, you know, discouraged from liking things too much or they're told that the things that they like are not cool mm-hmm. or they're told that they can't like the things that men like. Um, so, Well, they don't know how to like the things <laughs> men like. Exactly. They're just not capable. So, um, so far I've invited a few of my favourite feminists into the hot seat to tell me about a pop culture pick that they just could talk about all day. And, uh, of course, you were one of my guests, so that episode will be coming out shortly. In November it's launching, so... Very exciting times. Look for it where you get all your good podcasts. For anyone curious about what it was we discussed in that episode, it was Taylor Swift. (laughs) Obviously. (laughs) It reminds me actually of, um, I can't remember who tweeted it, but it was a great tweet and it was reshared again on my Instagram last night um, from a guy who said that every time we're forced to talk about Joe Rogan, I'm reminded of my one true uh, axiom, I think he said about life, (laughs) and that is that Anything only men like can never be cool. <laughs> Going sideways from Joe Rogan, a favourite um, follow of mine at the moment is Young Me Maya, who's a Korean-American comedian and a single mum. And she recently tweeted that the best thing about being a single mum is that guys who listen to Joe Rogan won't date you. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. And they, all, they, you know, any kind of variation on that, men think – that withholding their willingness <laughs> to deign to date you will somehow be deeply wounding. So one of the things that I want to do with this episode is, um, for anyone who doesn't know, my book is coming out next week. And that's very, very exciting. And I might do a little spiel about that at the end of this episode. But what it also means is that I'm a little bit stretched for time. <laughs> I haven't been properly able to plan this week's episode. I don't know if I should be saying that, but <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know relentlessly committed to honesty and Karen you were working in my house anyway and I was like there's all these things that I want to talk about this week with you anyway why don't we just talk about them on my podcast so it's one of those other kind of slightly unusual episodes where there's no questions from listeners but hopefully the discussions that we're having will answer some questions you didn't even know you had Um, I just wanted to also issue a content note because at least one of the topics that we're going to be discussing today is quite heavy and I will you know, issue another note on top of that um, segment, but it's pretty heavy. It details sexual assault and violence and homicide and um, a whole lot of other messy issues that if you're feeling a little bit delicate or tender, then maybe dip out when we get to that bit or listen to it later or just be prepared that it will be a kind of intense conversation. But one that I think has a lot of merit and value. Before that, though... Karen, can we? Oh, <laughs> that's my ringtone, everyone. I <laughs> won't even cut that out. Men don't like me. Straight men want to fight me. I don't know what I did to piss off men. You can probably guarantee I'm going to do it again. You know, the funny thing is that ever since I made that my ringtone, um, men don't like you. Men don't like me. Ever since, I, ever since I've made that my ringtone, anytime my phone rings now, my son just sings along. It's so Bless cute. Him. It'll start, the phone will start ringing. He'll go, men don't like me. Straight men want to fight me. <laughs> oh, dear, that's Clementine's indoctrinating a child. <laughs> Karen, before we get into the heavier topic, 
of today. When I came back from my appointment this morning and you were working on my couch, I overheard you making some Instagram stories and you were talking about – you used to work at the Registry for Births, Deaths and Marriages Mm -hmm. and you were talking about um, people, particularly women and particularly when they marry men, changing their names and you and I both agree and acknowledge and understand that that's a completely retro activity that we've been conditioned into – that we've been taught to aspire to. There's no defensible majority reason for women changing their names when they marry men. It's just upholding patriarchy. I know that some people listening to this might disagree with that. I'm not trying to um, I'm not trying to insult your choices if you've made them or if you want to make them. But I would urge you to sit down and have at least some kind of interrogation of why you want to make those choices. But what I overheard you talking about, Karen, was the interesting aspect of it being a lot harder to change your name for any other purpose than marriage and the Mm. fact of that being such an easy thing to do Mm -hmm. signifies how important it is to the status quo and to patriarchy that women are still kind of coerced into that choice yeah and every time women say defensively well I've got my own special reason for doing it that you don't understand I'm like I'm sure you do but also you're upholding the patriarchy. <laughs> so that's the... Well, no choice is made in a vacuum. All of our choices are informed by the circumstances of the world and the culture that we live in. And especially when people say, well, you know, it's not that big a deal. Like, why does it matter? I'll be like, well, and if it doesn't matter, don't do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, it matters a great deal to the status quo. And the reason why it's evolved that way, we all should be aware, is literally because of marriage as a kind of property settlement between two families and a woman changing hands, changing hands. And an inheritance. Yeah, exactly. Meant that money was changing hands and also that um, she now belonged as a commodity to that new family. Um, It obviously does things like uphold ideas about monogamy and ownership and, um, you know, male power in family dynamics as well as um, in society. But, uh, yeah, interestingly, working at the Registry of Births, Deaths and Marriages, I found out quickly that when you change your name by marriage, it's very easy and – that's because it's not actually a legal name change. Hmm. It's a convention of our society that people assume their husband's name, women assume their husband's name after they marry a man. So often you would have blushing newlyweds coming into the registry saying, I'm here to change my name. And I'd have to deliver the slightly disappointing news to them that um, you don't need to be at the Registry of Births, Deaths and Marriages to change your name. You just need to supply your marriage certificate to get a new driver's licence, change your bank accounts, forge a brand new identity for yourself that will be accepted in society with no reason, no proof, no money changing hands, no Mm. security check, no nothing. By contrast, if you change your name for any other reason – like you just want to change your name or you assume a stage name or a performance name or you affirm your gender identity and you are known by a different name in the community, you go through a pretty rigorous process of a security and background check to make sure that you don't owe money or that you're not on the run from the law and you pay 
an amount of money, a nominal amount, less than a hundred bucks, um, to legally have your name changed. Now, that has to happen in this, you know, very strict manner in order to, I guess, deter people from doing it too much. There's also a, a limitation on how often you can change your name. There's this funny kind of, I think it's three times maximum and not within five years of each other or, you know, some sort of um, limit. And so I always wonder every time this this changing name after marriage debate crops up again, why don't we just make it exactly the same process if you want to change your name after marriage mm. rather than making it so much easier for people to assume what is legally just an alias in the mm. community. Um, because then the flip side of it was that we would sometimes get um, really empowered divorced women in the registry saying, I'm here to change my name back to my name. And I'd have to say to them, honey, your name is your name. It's always been your name. And those 20 years that you assumed your husband's name, you can just undo that. I mean, that raises a really good and central point to all this is that, you know, something that Catherine Devaney, who talks about this topic a lot, has also said is that she's never met anyone. This is purely obviously anecdotal, but mm. I, I would say that this is true for me also. She's never met anyone who regrets not changing their name because that option is always, I mean, whether or not it's legal or not, that, mm-hmm. that option to assume a name is always there. But she has met a lot of women in particular who've changed their names after marriage or mm-hmm. have assumed a name after marriage mm-hmm. who deeply regret it. Whether or not they're even with that person anymore or not, like a lot of women who are still with their husband write to me and say, I really regret taking his name and I want, I want to change it back. I mean, it'll be interesting to pass your information on to them that actually it's a lot easier for you to change it back than you thought. Mm-hmm. Although not easy in terms of convention. I always find it really interesting when women who get married defend the – and I, I'm wary of using words like defend because I don't want to make this an issue that women have to defend. Women have to defend themselves against patriarchy all the time mm-hmm. and defending themselves against the choice to participate in something that smooths the path through an already pretty, like, unsmooth life is – they shouldn't be the people who have to defend that. We need mm. to con- continuously work to put the onus of um, defence onto patriarchy. Why do you expect women to change their names? Why is this so important to patriarchy? Why are you as an individual man so hell-bent on your wife taking your name to affirm your masculinity in front of other men, which is what patriarchy, of course, demands of men? But having said that, I've always found it interesting when women say, well, it was just easier to do it. I mean, obviously what you're saying is that it is actually very legally easy to do, but that's not what they're saying. They're saying that conventionally it was just easier to do it. And Why it was, is that the case? Why that's, that, that's what we need to be questioning. Why is it just easier for you to be married as a woman? Mm. I mean, already it's easier, quote unquote, easier for you to exist in the world as a married woman because that confers some kind of status in patriarchy. But then why is it easier for you to signal to everyone around you that you will not only participate in that tradition, but you will uphold all of the signifiers of it. Yeah, and then, you know, if you have kids, your children carrying the same name as you and your husband as well, which, you know, this yeah. is another another extension of that debate. But like you said, it's expected of women, and I think when women are married, often 
if they go back into a, a regular or mainstream workplace, you know, there'll be an assumption that they'll change their name. And so there's these, there are these direct pressures and there are indirect pressures. So there might be men saying, I wouldn't care at all, but, um, you know, my, I think my dad would really not like it or whatever. You know, there are all of these kind of different ways that people justify it. But like you said, we talk about the structures that keep producing these outcomes rather than the individuals who keep participating in it. Mm. At the moment, it is structurally produced that when a woman changes her name to her husband's after marriage, the way is smoothed. Compare that with a man changing his name to his wife's after marriage. What's the reaction of his friends? What's the reaction of his work oh, colleagues. Yeah, totally What's the re- reaction of his family members? Yeah. Um, no, well, we know who wears the pants <laughs> in that family. And what happens when he goes, you know, when he goes into the bank branch to get it changed or he, yeah. you know, every single well, step it's of the way. not as easy yes. for men to assume yes, wives' names. Exactly. Legally. Yes. Than it is for women to do it mm-hmm. in the reverse. So also when people say things like, well, it's a choice. It's like, well, if it was a choice made with true – um, truly informed will, mm-hmm. as many men would be doing it as women, but it's not. So therefore it's a convention. And also this brings us to the idea that like if it's a choice, then shouldn't you be defending it because I made it so therefore it's feminist. And obviously <laughs> like the concept of choice feminism has been so expertly denounced by many academics and thinkers. Um, so we're not saying anything new here. But choice in and of itself is never a marker of liberation. Choice made in patriarchal conditions. It can be a survival mechanism. Mm-hmm. but it's It can not, be the right choice for that yeah. moment. Um, but it's not necessarily liberating in and of itself, particularly not when you have women saying things like, well, I changed my name because I wanted to have the same last name as my children. <laughs> Which, again, like I urge you to sit down and un- – listeners to sit down and unpack that – that if you are the person who is charged, say you're the birth parent, let's say you're a cis woman partnered with a cis man and you're physically growing and giving birth to your child and the assumption in the world that we live in is that automatically he will have naming rights over that child. I mean, these are these are throwbacks to patriarchal conditions in which women were transferred as property between father and, you know. And so were children. And so were children, and it was very important for for men to have male heirs, for them to bestow their name on. Because when you when you really peel that back, it's not so important under those conditions for men to have female heirs to bestow their name on. Because the assumption is that she will she will be given a new name when a man chooses her. Mm-hmm. It's all about the property ownership from man to son, and I I just feel like if your if your gut sense is or if you haven't thought about this so much and you say well my you know I wanted to have the same last name as my children honey <laughs> you should have the same last name as your children they should have your name when people say well it's your father's name anyway firstly it's not always your father's name but secondly why is it that women when they have a name it's always assumed to be just their father's name but when men have a name they get to have it for themselves they get to give it to other people mm-hmm. women can't give their name to other people because it just belongs to a man anyway it was she was borrowing it yeah. until she got another man's name i was going to tell you that in um other countries like i think it's in portugal the woman the mother's name is the last name and the father's name becomes the middle name mm-hmm. and i know also in indonesia children get their 
first name based on where they fall in the order of birth. Yeah. So that's why, you know, when you're in Indonesia, you meet so many people with the same name because one of the names will mean first son and one will mm. mean second son and third son. And then they – Or first child even. Yeah, and they are given – a surname, they're given their last name as a chosen name by the family. So then it, it it's done partly mm. so that every person goes out into the world themselves with their own name and they don't carry the privilege and status of, of the family name, but they also don't carry the baggage and burden mm. of the family name. So they just go into the world where your, your surname might mean sunshine or, mm. you know, strength or courage or whatever and your first name simply denotes the order of birth which I guess of course is another kind of um hierarchy of status Mm. but I love that idea that you know everyone in a family has a different name Mm. nobody has the same surname in a family of people and guess what it's fine yeah and 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 nobody gets confused and parents don't feel less connected to their children and children don't feel so Mummy loves them more than daddy. I mean, mm. it's just a ridiculous kind of retconning of problems mm. assigned to it as though um, you're going to go and enroll your child in school and there's going to be like table flips because the kids have got a different <laughs> name to you. Like it really is but not who that are big a you? deal. <laughs> That's a really important point as well is that so often when we're having these conversations, we're obviously coming from a, a location of being um, – in Western culture, which is obviously, you know, informed by white supremacy and and adheres to white supremacy and the idea that, like, this is universally what happens all over the world is obviously false mm-hmm. and families, as you say, function perfectly well despite having different ma- naming systems, some of them matrilineal, all over the world. And the idea then of adhering to tradition is really just another way for patriarchy to dress it up as saying well this is it's nice that we have these traditions isn't it isn't it don't you want to be part of these traditions don't you want to have status in the world because people will look at you as a woman who upholds tradition but even more sinister don't do you really want to punish your children yeah do you really want to put your children through grief and difficulty just so that you can live out your politics clementine <laughs> well i mean on the one hand i would answer to that question Yes, actually, sometimes yeah. my child will be put in more difficult positions so that we live out our values in our family, peers. But also, yeah, this idea that um, drafting the children into the argument, you know, is designed to guilt women into taking their husbands' names. Mm. Um, and I'm sure that many parents and parents-in-law have deployed it to great effect Mm. Um, when women are making this so-called free Free choice. choice. We're not going to solve the problem of marriage and names and patriarchy today, but (laughs) just something to think about. (laughs) Okay, I just want to give a content note again at the top of this segment because it's pretty heavy and um, like I mentioned in at the top of the episode it you know it addresses sexual assault it addresses homicide it also addresses um, some some pretty intense stuff to do with children but it's nothing to do with uh, it's not the sexual abuse of children so 
But it is a heavy topic. So if you need to dip out now, then maybe just skip forward for the next 20 minutes um, or come back to it later. Karen, last night I was sitting on my couch, ostensibly watching TV while looking at TikTok. (laughs) Um, And I came across – this video came up on my For You page and I'm not going to mention the user's name because I – I just feel very uncomfortable about the whole thing and I also don't want any more people to go to his account. It's a person who, and I have no reason to disbelieve what they're saying, it's a, it's a man from America who, so he has he spent 19 and a half years in prison and wow. has been out for seven years and is now making these TikTok videos. He's clearly a very smart and amusing, funny, switched-on person. But the story that he has of how he ended up in prison was that he was 12 years old and a friend of his from the neighbourhood who he'd been, you know, he'd gone to Sunday school with and who he played computer games with, and that we're talking, this would have been 25 years ago now, Mm -hmm. um, so mid-90s, early mid-90s. He, his friend sexually assaulted his sister or his sister came home one day He was 12, his sister was 14, and his sister came home and said, your friend has raped me. So he went and found three of his friends, his other friends, according to this guy, and they got a weapon and they went round and they beat this boy so badly that he died. And he went to juvenile detention centre. He went to juvenile detention and as he tells the story was so and still is so convinced that he had done the right thing that he um, was remanded there for a number of years through his adolescence. He escaped at one point and committed an armed robbery for which he was then sent to prison for 19 years or for for the next um, 15 years or however, however long it was and now he's been released. Now what I want to talk about, that is a very complicated story with lots of like horrifying details. But he shared the story of this unapologetically, that this is why I went to prison, because I murdered this boy who had hurt my sister and I would do it again. And all of the comments in these TikToks are from men and women, but a lot a lot from men who are saying, you shouldn't have gone to prison for that. You're a hero. You should have been given, you know, you should have been rewarded for that. And as I was reading through, the reason I want to bring this up is because as I was reading through this, it occurred to me that this is, when women share stories of being sexually assaulted or having had men rape them, not believed, questioned, doubted, all those comments all those comments would have been filled with well what did you do did this really happen you're just trying to destroy his life but it seemed to me that in this like horrifying really specific weird story what was being captured here was a reality that existing in the world today is that sexual assault and rape is only ever believed or considered you know the worst thing that anyone could ever do if a man has appeared to avenge a woman and I wanted to talk about – I know it's really heavy, but I wanted to talk about why that is. Well, I mean, in that instance, it seems like it's significant that it's his sister and presumably – I mean, I don't 
know if she's older or younger or if he had any kind of... Um, she was two years older. Right. So he felt, you know, a responsibility to her being in his family. Um, I mean, just to kind of zoom back, the absolute horror of the fact that he was a child and he and a few other children got to a point where they then attacked another child, so they were all children, <laughs> and between the three or four of them, at no, you know, nobody called it off, mm. sounded the alarm, stopped it. That's just, you know, beyond belief. And it kind of speaks to a context or a culture that, that maybe those kids lived in in which violence was more normalised mm. or um, celebrated or glorified. Um, but I think that that's still in terms of the response that he's gotten, which of course it's TikTok. I'm not saying that this is representative of all of society. It's mm. obviously an extreme example. But I do think that it's reflective of the fact that there is a hero narrative mm. that exists when discussing sexual mm. assault and sexual violence in which, though you know, it's like – Hannah Gadsby talking about the line, that when men can decide what the line is, they get to always determine which side of the line that they're on. And so it's only acceptable to acknowledge that rape and sexual assault are these horrendous crimes if men can be the ones who decide who the perpetrators of it and if they can decide by by using violence themselves to, you know, to avenge whatever whatever woman they believe belongs to their clan. Yeah, and it is, as you said, and, and belongs to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's also kind of speaks to those ideas within patriarchy of, you know, women being possessions and women being, you know, you've, you've, that we see play out in honour killings and different, different ways yeah. around the world where it's, you know, you've desecrated my property or, you know, they're, they're kind of almost – um, treated as a, a crime against the man who owns that woman. <laughs> well, they are definitely yeah. understood as being a crime against. It's like um, I was talking on an app the other day with someone and I asked them, they, they work in film, and I said, what film do you wish you'd made? Which I always think is a very instructive question to ask <laughs> men in particular. And his reply was two films, and he said that and they might cause – Controversy either way, and one was Empire Strikes Back. Whatever, like I expect that of a man. But the other was. I mean, he seems like a nice enough person. But the other one was Irreversible, which of course, for anyone who hasn't seen Irreversible, please don't. No, never ever watch it. It's very well known for when it came out at the time. I think it was two thousand and four. It had a twelve-minute-long, incredibly violent scene of sexual assault. It's also. That you the know, film begins with. Yeah. It's also um, like Obviously slight directed side by a man. step. Yes. At French. It's a slight sidestep to say, though, it, it's considered cinematically um, a, an incredible accomplishment and feat mm. um, in that it, it does tell the story in reverse and then the techniques that are used and, you know, the kind of um, – wizardry of the mm. the making of the film is is really revered as well. But yeah, I would, I would be really scared if someone said that to me on a dating app. I'm not I just think it's absolutely like so socially normal mm. for most cishet men to conceive of 
to be like, but it's a really good film. Well, not even like let's even zoom out from the film, but to conceive of that topic as being one in which they can always be framed as the voyeur and mm. whether or not that's the voyeur for their own like disturbing titillation. Well, no, it, it actually as a voyeur it is all about titillation and whether or not that titillation is about an actual disturbing sexual response to what they're seeing or the titillation that comes from thinking I would be the hero in that scenario. Or even a, another option is that it's just abstract to them. Mm. It's literally just like, you know, it's about this terrible act. You know, it's just whereas I think – And I think it's terrible. That yeah, means I'm good. There are not, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of performance of virtue, mm. but also that women don't ever see depictions of rape of women as an abstract mm. – um, conceptual separate thing we see it as yeah. like something quite personal or something that either we've experienced or we've feared our whole lives and nor are women in general ever going to stand there and fiercely defend the necessity of it being depicted on screen mm. or in literature in the way that so many men do oh well that's we need to see it because that's what really would happen it's like whatever film you're <laughs> talking about is set in space with like three-legged aliens like what what realism are you looking for here i mean it's the the point being that i remember when um the stanford when brock turner was uh convicted of rape in in the stanford swimmer case you know all these all these like little phrases that we have to diminish i mean mm. you you commented on um there was a story the other day about needle spiking mm. that has come out of the UK, which may or may not actually on further mm. looking mm-hmm. may or may not be the needle aspect of it may or may not be slightly exaggerated and detracting from the fact that obviously drink spiking and sexual assault as a result of that still occurs. Men sexually assaulting women as a result mm. of that still occurs in very high numbers. But there was an article shared in which the passive voice, of course, was used, the passive voice being women are having this happen to them. There's been a rise in needle spiking in England, but at nowhere do they talk about who's actually doing it. So as you commented, like, what did these women just walk into a club and needles just attacked them? <laughs> well, also that even drink spiking as a as a term I despise because I'm like, it's not – the drink is not being spiked. The person who's going to drink that drink is the one who's being drugged. Yeah. So drink spiking is meaningless. You know, drink spiking is like car speeding – you know, we don't think of like, you know, drink driving or speeding as something that the car does. Yeah. We think of it as something that the driver does. And it's the same thing, you know, to me calling, giving any kind of cute name to the myriad fucked up things that men do to women when they hate them. Or when they don't even hate yeah, them. Yeah, it's always exist. wrong. Yeah. Yeah, you know, so to go back to, your, passive to them. the TikTok about the, the guy who's out of prison, I mean, my overwhelming feeling about that is that, you know, much like you, I'm so troubled by the idea that all of these commenters who for whom this is an abstract story that they're commenting on as though it's like a movie plot or something, mm. they're just fist pumping and saying, yeah, right on, amazing. And I'm wondering, as I always do, whenever there are outpourings of, of comments on, say, you know, a news story in which a woman is murdered or a news story in which a woman is raped or has disappeared, and men will immediately jump on and say, whoever did this should be, you know, have their fucking dick cut off and, you know, but should be fucking... dead. Yeah. But also I'm, I'm always thinking to myself, 
How many of you who are paying for the blood of this abuser of women abuse women yourself? Mm-hmm. And yet there's this there's this performance of shock and horror and dismay and disgust at this terrible thing. Like how many of the kids on TikTok who are saying to him, right on, you shouldn't go to jail for that. And if anyone touched my sister, I'd fucking kill him too, mm. have assaulted their girlfriend. That's the thing. And it's 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 who gets to determine the story. You know, when I um, – And which women matter. Yeah. So going back to the Stanford – trial and Brock Turner I I remember thinking at the time and I wrote about it at the time as well that the thing that made um cynically what I observed was the outpouring of support for Chanel Miller who wrote so beautifully and eloquently about you know in her vic- victim impact statement about what Brock Turner had done to her was enabled in a broad social sense by the fact that two Swedish cyclists had ridden past men mm. who had intervened and um, restrained Brock, Brock Turner until police could come. And the presence of male witnesses, I mean, it's so interesting that so much racism and Islamophobia is directed towards regions that have encoded um, systems where you need to have male witnesses yeah. because that's exactly how the fucking West operates. They mm-hmm. just don't put it into legislation. Mm-hmm. Um so many people were like, oh, well, not only did men witness it, therefore it must have happened, but also when I'm thinking about this story now and I'm a man, I can imagine that I'm one of the heroes. Mm-hmm. I identify yeah. with the guys in the bikes. I identify with the guys in the bikes. Whereas if the guys weren't there, then the only person who's a man in this story that I could identify with because, of course, as a man and particularly as white cishet men, I'm used to always being in the story. Mm-hmm. And centering myself in it, the only man left for me to identify with is that guy that she's saying raped her. Mm. And I'm not that's a rapist. That's unfair to me. What if that didn't happen? <laughs> and so that's where all of that like defensiveness comes in. So as soon as men are given the opportunity to say, well, yeah, of course, I'd be To the rewrite brother, the narrative. I'd be the brother that picked up a weapon and went and like beat that boy so badly that he died. And yet conversely, you know – young girls at school who come out and say, I mean, we also have to remember that these were children. Mm-hmm. If this story is true, these were mm-hmm. children. And the people in these comments were like celebrating and cheering for the fact that this other 12-year-old boy had been killed um, and he deserved it. And the things that they were saying about him were like horrendously representative of how flawed people's thinking are about justice. Um, but if she had just gone to school and said, this kid assaulted me, and he had to actually go through a process of that being tested. Of course, under current conditions, we know that the response would be very different. Why is she trying to destroy his life? Well, what if she went and killed him? Well, exactly. I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, when women when women take up arms, you know, and and I don't I don't want girls, children, women no. to become vigilantes and kill men who have wronged them, no matter how much I enjoy watching it in movies. I don't want that to happen in real life. And nor would you, nor would you like deny anyone the fantasy of doing that. Absolutely. But I just think there's a, you know, there's a big difference in how that would be totally. received in the news or a woman on TikTok who, who was in her 40s said, yeah, I've just gotten out of jail because when I was Absolutely. 12, I went and murdered a guy who raped me. Um, and then I had to do an armed robbery to – you know, yeah. make it through and I've just gotten out of jail. I mean, the idea that that would be, you know, un- celebrated in an uncomplicated way is absurd. Mm. 
But you said before, you know, men are interested in stories about rape and sexual assault in so much as they can rewrite them and reshape them into a hero narrative in which they can identify with the hero. Which is why they love putting it on screen so much. Yeah. So if there were if if the story of of Brock Turner raping um Chanel Miller had ended with two women on bikes stopping, the whole thing would be very different. If well, those, that would be a conspiracy then. Yeah, those two, those three women. I mean, it's just three women against this and one also, guy. Probably, I mean, probably he'd rejected one of them and yeah. they colluded together to. And you know what women are like, yeah. you know, the three of them together. Um, and that's the thing. It's like the hero narrative is for men only. Like mm. women don't get to be the hero in in the hero narrative around rape and sexual assault. And when they are in like rape revenge movies, which is, you know, a particular niche that I love watching. Um, But that's seen as so deviant and demonic and, you know, um, it's for horror movies. It's not for real life and it's not for, you know, um, conversation on social media. Well, I wonder how, you know, what the response from people who do cheer and champion men who take, you know, who who defend their women in this way, I wonder what their response would be to a movie like Promising Young Woman, for example. And mm. I know that there are people out there who did not like that film and who have justified critique for it, but it is a revenge fantasy mm. um, made by a woman, written by a woman. Obviously it comes from a perspective that is not told through the male gaze and I think that it would be deeply uncomfortable for a lot of men who value themselves as allies. It was so interesting, just sliding quickly off into um, Emerald uh, Emerald Fennell, mm-hmm. Emerald Fennell's casting choices there, mm. that for all of the, you know, secretly abusive men mm-hmm. who feature in that film, she cast all of the nice guys of mm-hmm. Hollywood. Yeah. Guys who are known for playing like Chris the Lowell. most, yeah, the most non-threatening sweethearts who yeah. would be the heroes in any other movie. You know, be the, the cutie pie. The Seth Cohen. Well, well, but also in a, in a, in some imagined, um, scene of the OC where a woman is getting assaulted, Seth would, you know, call his dad or like, <laughs> you know, um, he would, he would, him and him or maybe Ryan would go and beat the shit out of them but that just shows you how much I love the OC that I can immediately ascribe all that but there there are yeah that that stunt casting that she did of all the the men and of the women as well Mm. that she had like Jennifer Coolidge Mm. as the mother who you know really against type um playing like a kind of I guess anxious frumpy um mother Mm. who just wanted her daughter to be normal and settle down and stop, you know. Well, she was worried about her, wasn't she? Yeah. Um, it's interesting because the way in which, you know, there was a one of these bloody anti-vaxxer, anti-lockdown Fruit Loops. Maybe I should say Fruit Loops. One of these anti-vaxxer ding-dongs who has really worked hard in Melbourne to establish themselves as a thought leader on, you know, Dan Andrews being a dictator and his – Currently, I think, has a GoFundMe that's currently up to about $100,000 to make some Jesus weird fucking documentary about how Melbourne's like a police state now. It's bizarre. <laughs> I've seen him now twice invoke rape scenarios to describe vaccine mandates, one of which was he shared this terrible meme comparing, 
you know, vaccine mandates to Harvey Weinstein in Hollywood mm. um, and then went on this bizarre rant on an Instagram Live about how there is no choice and he described in graphic detail how, well, you're a, how someone could hold you down I mean, it was very graphic. Yeah. It was very like... And force something inside you. Graphically or, yeah. descriptive of not just a sexual assault scenario, but a sexual assault scenario in which someone has literally been kidnapped and is being held against their will. And I thought it's so funny, the men that love to get... I mean, it's not funny, obviously, but there is a genre of man who, whose identity and personality they like to set up as being a kind of vigilante, I will defend the people around me, and yet they almost use it as an opportunity to lean into these like graphic descriptions in a way that's clearly very uncomfortable. Um, But I just, yeah, so it's a very complicated topic, but I wanted to talk about it because I was, I found myself being increasingly disturbed as I was watching this man's videos last night and also it driving home to me that the only time that these things will be believed is when men uh, men are around to avenge them, you know, and then it becomes an act of, heroism and an act of justice whereas before that it's always just a he said she said Mm. thank you for having that discussion with me (laughs) I know it's again it's not one that we can solve but um well it was making me think of another show that I watched recently which is I'll be gone in the dark and I watched it about a year after everyone else and um finally kind of felt like I had the mental fortitude to watch it and for people who I, I won't spoil it because, you know, you should just go and see it. It's a brilliant piece of documentary making. Um, but it does uh, revolve around historical crimes committed against women, including rape and murder um, and men actually um, committed against men as well. Uh, but because you meet a lot of the victims throughout the course of the documentary, these women whose lives are – you know, just irrevocably changed by one day, one act. Um, And they've spent their whole lives, you know, piecing that back together or in some cases becoming, you know, incredible activists and advocates for victims and survivors. And there's a part towards the end where one of the main players in the doco, um, Pat Oswald, (laughs) is saying, you know, the – the fact that terrible things happened to these women and and terrible things also happened to the person who hurt them. But look at what they have done and look at what he did. Mm. And it really fucked me up. Like I really thought that was so profound that I think, you know, the idea that um, this kid, this 12-year-old kid, has responded to a trauma not even happening to him but ha- you know happening to someone he loved very much and and by by um connection to him he's responded in you know the worst possible way mm-hmm. and ended a life and derailed his own and probably his sisters and everyone around him and everyone involved and i mean he was only a child but the idea that um Sometimes terrible things happen to you and you can become a person who then does terrible things Mm. or you can become a person who 
you know, is the last person who would ever hurt anyone else. Mm. And, you know, I've just tried to kind of dance around that um, that idea in, in talking about I'll Be Gone in the Dark because I really think people should just go watch it without me spoiling too much about it. It does speak to the destruction that is caused by these narratives of heroism and, and vigilantism, vigilantism, and you know that all these and lives even ca- can be, even incarceration and even incarceration, yeah. yeah, of course. That I mean, there's no. It's a it's an incredibly sad story, and it's one that, as I said, I was really disturbed by when I was reading the comments and watching it, and it prompted all of these thoughts in me, and I did what I always do, which was try to talk them out. So, <laughs> thank you. And also, if anyone has obviously listened through that and has, you know, has raised some issues for you or if you need to reach out and seek help, then please do check out the liner notes of this episode because all of the helplines that you need will be in there. You can also call Lifeline Australia on 13 11 14 and 1800 Respect. Of course, both of those lines are 24-hour services and available seven days a week. finish on a lighter note but also in service of exploring you know cultural change when it comes to masculinity and what positive masculinity looks like let's talk very quickly about a show that we both love which many people may have seen by now but some people may be lagging on because they might look at it and think oh that doesn't that doesn't look like a show I like trust me you will it is Ted Lasso I had exactly that experience when um, so many people had said to me, you've got to watch Ted Lasso. And I just looked at it and was like, I have zero interest in watching a sort of funny drama about football. Um, And I even watched the first episode and just found it completely unappealing mm. um, and sort of went back to my friend and was like, what do you see in it? You know, is it, is it actually, is the whole conceit of the show that he's nice? Like, is that really? So the basic, the basic premise for anyone who's not familiar with Ted Lasso is Ted Lasso is played by Jason Sudeikis. Um, he is, his character is very nice, <laughs> but he's a lot more complicated than just being nice, which mm-hmm. comes up in, in later episodes. Ted Lasso is an NFL coach who is recruited to be the coach of a football team in England, so soccer as we would know it, a soccer team in England that is kind of struggling in the Premiership League and whose owner is the recently separated former partner of um, this very toxic piece of shit. And she now owns the football team. And the basic premise at the beginning is that, and you find this out in the the first episode, so I'm not spoiling anything for you, is that she's brought Ted over thinking that he'll destroy the team and that will be the revenge she needs to get against her disgusting ex-husband. What it really ends up being is a beautiful show about joy and heart and hope and unpacking toxic masculinity and men working together and men discovering, you know, it's a really joyful examination of what male camaraderie can look like. Mm-hmm. And women working and what, together and as what well. women can, can look like when they're not each other's enemies. Mm. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's kind of in some ways a really classic fish out of water scenario where um, a lot of the gags to start with are derived from Ted not really understanding 
English football. Um, oh, I shouldn't call it English football, football, um, as it's known around the world, except for in Australia where we call other things football. Um, but Ted is, yeah, preternaturally cheerful, almost kind of bordering on pathologically happy and kind and sweet and loving and it almost just feels the whole time as though you know some hammer's going to drop because you you just don't believe that anyone is this adorable mm. um and i think in a pretty expert way the show then you know brings some complexity to all the characters but i think the reason why i reacted against it to start with is because they're really setting up that premise in the first few episodes of leading the audience to believe that everyone is a one-dimensional kind Mm -hmm. of cardboard cutout. And then as they kind of, you know, skillfully take you on that journey, you realise that when you go around and look, you know, beside people and behind people, there's so much going on for every character. But like you said, the men especially, the the male homosocial relationships that evolve – are really joyful to watch and really challenging to our ideas of how men behave among themselves and how they would – sadly, it is a, a bit of a utopian fantasy of how men would behave in an elite sporting club. Um, but, yeah, incredibly enjoyable to watch. It is incredibly enjoyable and it's a very, very uh, – like soothing antidote against some of the shit that like we just know that men do day in and day out. And also I feel like it's one of those ones that if you have men in your life, it's really good to watch with them because I think it'll raise a lot of issues and there's lots of stuff in there to unpack about toxic relationships with fathers, how the ways in which men pass on masculinity to one another can be either really negative or really Positive, like mm-hmm. the relationship that Sam Obisanya, uh, um, Obisanya, Obisanya, yeah. the relationship that Sam Obisanya has with his dad, is just so beautiful mm. and clearly completely contradictory to the relationship Jamie Tart has with his piece of shit dad. Mm-hmm. Um, those names may mean, no- mean nothing to anyone listening now, <laughs> but honestly, it's really, really. So joyful and the perfect thing to watch at the end of a hard day dealing with patriarchal shit. Absolutely. been listening to the big sister hotline and it has been a slight deviation today and actually i quite liked that format so i'm going to go away and think about whether or not that might be how i do things from now on having a short thing to think about about the world that we live in a convention that we might participate in something that maybe needs to be unpacked in things that we do without thinking and then a longer segment in the middle of an issue that's come up that week that might be a little bit heavier or, or light, whatever, but something that's a bit juicier, and then finish on a recommendation. Um, I think that that might be something that I think about for going forward because I just really, really enjoyed that conversation, Karen. And Understand. I always enjoy having you on the show, obviously, and I can't wait for your podcast. Yeah, it's going to be, you know, pretty much like the 
hours of conversation that we have about Taylor Swift that's unmiked. Um, <laughs> yes. But people will be able to just eavesdrop uh, for an hour or so and, and share in the enthusiasm and excitement and thrill that we have of becoming uh, Swifties in middle age. That's another joyful antidote to toxic masculinity quickly. Maybe that'll be the final thing. What's your joyful antidote to toxic masculinity? Men enjoying Taylor Swift on TikTok. I love that genre. Um, I just wanted to do a quick shout out to my wonderful Patreon supporters. Without your support, I couldn't make this podcast or any of the things that I do. If you would like to become a supporter on Patreon, you can do that at www.patreon.com forward slash Clementine Ford. That link is also in the liner note to this episode. I'd also like to thank my podcast hosts, Acast, the best bloody podcast hosts a gal could have. Thank you very much for having me on your network. And to you, dear listeners, if you do like the show, then please feel free to rate it or review it or not. Maybe just recommend it to your friends or not. Just continue enjoying it at your leisure. Um, you can email me on bigsisterhotline at gmail.com. Anything you say to me will be kept anonymous unless you would like me to share your name, which I doubt you will. You can make up a name for yourself also. And I hope that wherever you are, you're enjoying your week, you're finding something to bring you joy, and you're gathering with your gal pals or your friends, however they may, um, whatever they may be, whoever they may be, and just really sucking the meat and the marrow out of life because we've only got one chance at it and may as well make it a good one. Karen, love you. Love your work. I'm very, very glad that you're in the world. Well, I guess you'll find out next week if I've changed the format and I hope that if I do that you'll stick with listening to the podcast. Let me know what you think. In the meantime, have a great week. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.